As the first rays of dawn broke over the city of Rome, a young man stood at the window of his hotel room thinking about his future. He had been summoned to the Eternal City for a job that would mean that his life would never again be the same. If he failed in his task, by the end of the day his name would be known around the world. If he succeeded, a world leader would be dead. As the streets below began to come alive with the noise of traffic, he loaded a 9mm semi-automatic pistol, placed it in his pocket and stepped out into the crowded city to meet the man who had hired him. The hit was scheduled to take place just after midday. The crowd was so big that it would be almost impossible for the security service to stop him. He slowly worked his way through the crowd, placing himself in the prime position, waiting for the procession to draw near. All morning he had felt sick with adrenaline, but now he felt completely composed. As the target came close, he pulled out his pistol and fired four shots at point-blank range. He knew from years of training that it would be impossible for anyone to survive an attack like that. As the people around him stood in shock, he turned and ran, pushing his way through the crowd and working his way towards freedom. By the time he reached the open streets, he could hear the screams and cries rising up from the crowd as the horrific reality became clear. The Pope had been shot. The assassin was emboldened by the fact that most bystanders were either frozen in disbelief or running in fear, all except for one. As he ran desperately through the streets, a nun saw that he was holding a gun, ran towards him and crash-tackled him to the ground, then sat on top of him until the police arrived. Mahmet Aliadka was arrested and taken into custody at the same time that Pope John Paul II was rushed to hospital. While the doctors worked frantically to save the Pope, the police began trying to piece together who the assassin was and who he was working for. They had the suspect, they had witnesses, they had the weapon. What they needed to understand was the motive. They would struggle for a long time to find solid evidence, but the dominant belief was that Mamet Ali Akkar had been paid to kill the Pope by some figures in the Soviet Union. Which raises the obvious question, why? Why would the largest nation on earth, with one of the largest armies ever seen in history, with enough nuclear weapons to wipe out human civilization, why would this regime be so afraid of the Pope that they would order him to be killed? Many commentators would try to point to the exact moment when the Pope became the enemy of the Soviet Empire and a target for assassination. But the moment that started all of this was hidden from view. A play, written by the Pope before he was even ordained as a priest. Written in secret, performed in secret but holding within it a short piece of dialogue that would shape the philosophy of the author, the agenda of his pontificate, and the future of the world. The man that we know as John Paul II began his life as Kaovotiwa. Like so many of the saints, there were many moments in his journey when he could have taken a different path, chosen to harden his heart instead of opening himself to God chosen to live a life that was safe and mediocre instead of taking the risk of following God's call. 
Growing up in Poland, in a house next door to the local church in the small town of Wodowice, he absorbed the Catholic culture of his beloved nation. When he was eight years old, his mother died from a heart attack. He had an elder sister who had died before he was born, and an older brother who was 13 years older than him. Young Carol was very close to his brother, but it would not be long before he too would die from a disease contracted while he was working as a physician. The town of Vodovice had a large Jewish population. When school football games were organized between Jewish and Catholic teams, Carol would often play with his friends on the Jewish team. Around the age of 18, he moved to Krakow with his father and began studying at university, studying various languages. It was during this time that he became involved with some theatre groups and started to write plays. A year later, his world changed dramatically as the German army invaded Poland. The university was closed and every able-bodied man was required to work. Carol took a job working in a limestone quarry so that he could avoid being deported to Germany, studying at an underground university in between his work. The church in Poland had to be creative if it was going to survive. It was impossible to gather young people together as they used to do, and many of their priests or leaders had been deported or were closely watched by the authorities. It was in this context that a 41-year-old tailor was approached by a Salesian priest to see if he would be willing to train a group of young men. Jan Tiranowski was reluctant to take up this request. While he had a strong personal faith, he had no training or experience in catechesis or discipleship. Despite this, he started working with a small group of teenagers and young adults, meeting in secret in his apartment. One of the young men who became involved in this group was Karol Rotiwa. In later life, the Pope would comment that he initially found Jan Tiranowski to be very intense, but he realized that he was trying to open them up to elements of the spiritual life that they had never heard of before. The Pope described him by saying, he was one of those unknown saints, hidden amidst the others like a marvelous light at the bottom of life, at a depth where night usually reigns. He disclosed to me the riches of his inner life, of his mystical life. In his words, in his spirituality, and in the example of a life given to God alone, he represented a new world that I did not yet know. I saw the beauty of a soul opened up by God. It was during these sessions that the young Carol was introduced to the spirituality of the Carmelite saints. The writings of John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila would go on to have a huge impact in the spirituality of the future Pope and help him to make sense of how God could still be found in the midst of the all-pervading evil and darkness of war. While gathering with this prayer group in secret, he was also joining his theatre group for clandestine meetings. Carol had begun writing plays prior to the German invasion believing that truth needed to be communicated and culture preserved. As the occupation became more oppressive, many of his peers began questioning whether they should take up arms and fight in the resistance. Carol had never been interested in that idea. 
even refusing to fire a gun during the compulsory military training as a teenager. Instead, he believed that the greatest victory could be won through the power of the spoken word. The plays that he wrote were never designed to be performed on a large stage. Instead, they were written on the assumption that they would be recited without any acting in a small apartment while gathering in secret, hoping that they would not be found by the Gestapo. And so the focus was not on drama, but on the ideas that he felt needed to be communicated. This belief in the power of words and ideas would become the training ground for his future vocation, in which he would enter into two of the great culture battles of the 20th century. In 1941, his father died of a heart attack, leaving Carol as the only surviving member of his family at the age of 21. His friends would tell the story that he spent 12 hours kneeling in prayer at his father's bedside, and very soon afterwards decided to withdraw from the theatre group and begin studying for the priesthood. He spent the next few years studying in a secret seminary in the basement of the Archbishop's residence. He delved deeper into Carmelite spirituality, writing his doctorate dissertation on the writings of St. John of the Cross. Twice during this time, he tried to leave the seminary to join the Carmelites, and both times he was turned away with the advice that he was destined for greater things. As we now know, the Carmelites were correct in their assessment of this man. Carroll went on to be ordained in 1946. He went on to earn further doctorates in ethics and moral theology. He began teaching philosophy at university and devoted much of his time to working with young adults, helping them to grow in their faith. It was while he was on a kayaking trip with these young people that he received the message to say that he'd been appointed as the Auxiliary Bishop of Krakow. Six years later, he would become Archbishop. Three years later, he would become Cardinal. And then in 1978, at the age of 58, he would be elected as Pope. Three years later, he would be shot in St. Peter's Square while greeting pilgrims. It can be said that a life is the result of thousands of decisions, and a legacy is the result of a commitment to one idea. The early life of Karawatiwa helped to shape his view of the world, his view of what it meant to be human, of the great spiritual battle that gets played out in human history, and his understanding of how God brings salvation to a world trapped in chaos. When this young priest tried to understand these mysteries and put words to these concepts, the most natural thing was for him to write it in the context of a play. Through his training as a playwright, he would allow his characters to give voice to his philosophy. In 1960, in his early years as a bishop, the Pope had been trying to communicate something of God's vision for human sexuality. Having spent many years working with young couples, preparing them for marriage, he believed that the essential truth of the Gospels had been forgotten, or at least it had never been communicated in a compelling and attractive way. He wrote a play called The Jeweler's Shop, in which a number of young couples are discussing marriage, divorce, and the mystery of love. The philosophical idea contained in this play 
was then published in his famous book called Love and Responsibility. With such a huge divide in society between the puritanical vision of sexuality that was often presented by Christianity and the vision of complete liberation presented by the sexual revolution, the future Pope presented a beautiful vision of how love and sexuality are at the heart of the Christian mystery. This idea was then given to the church during his time as Pope in the form that we now know as the theology of the body. The seed of an idea written into a play eventually became a bold proclamation that has been challenging the culture of the world and the church ever since. This is where we come back to the events of May 13, 1981. The shot that echoed around the colonnades of St. Peter's Square was part of a large ideological battle about what it meant to be a human being. This bullet was trying to silence an idea, an idea that was planted nearly 40 years earlier. It was in 1944, while studying in secret for the priesthood, that Karol Wojtyla wrote a play that would honor the life of a Polish hero and put words to a concept that would be central to his future vocation. The play was written about Albert Szmielowski, an artist in the 1800s, who abandoned his career in painting at the age of 35 to join the Jesuits, but eventually had to leave the Jesuits due to a mental breakdown. It was at this lowest point in his life that he encountered the tender mercy of God and allowed God to transform his weakness. He was so filled with compassion for others that he began to care for the poor in the city of Krakow. When the Pope wrote this play, he wanted to honour a man who he would one day declare as a saint, the first time in history that a playwright has canonised one of his characters. But he also wanted to use the story as a context to compare the teaching of Jesus with the philosophy of communism. In one scene of the play, the Pope imagined Brother Albert working in a shelter for the poor when he's suddenly met by a Marxist revolutionary. A conversation begins in which their ideologies and vision for the world are laid bare. The Marxist revolutionary believes that the problems of the world are caused by structural inequality and that the only way to bring about change is through violently overthrowing the established order. As such, he believes that he should focus on telling the poor that they are oppressed, treat them as a collective group, make them angry, and encourage them to take up arms and fight to overthrow the oppressors. Brother Albert presents a very different view. He agrees that the world is unjust, but he believes that the true battle is inside the human heart. The only true change will come about when each person is treated as an individual with love and dignity. This may not change the structures of society, but it will change the hearts of those that he works with. In the end, the idea of the Marxist seems to win out. He stirs up the anger of those in the homeless shelter and encourages them to go out into the streets and to fight for the revolution. The scene closes with Brother Albert quietly caring for the people who remain, while in the background they can hear the revolutionaries being shot in the street. The dramatic contrast between these two worldviews, 
one that tries to change the world through anger and violence, and the other that seeks to care for the individual and change the world through love. This became central to the vision of Pope John Paul II. He understood this difference with such clarity that he became dangerous to the communist world. In every place where he traveled, the Pope tried to remind the world that real hope and transformation could only come through having a correct vision of the dignity of the human person. He fought strenuously against anything that would dehumanize people or treat them as pawns in a larger revolutionary fight. Ever since he had first expressed his thoughts in this play, he realized that the central battle was about this vision of what it means to be human. The communist regime believed that every human being was just a cog in the machine, a tool working for the revolution. But Christ had revealed our true identity as children of God, individuals with intrinsic dignity. In 1979, less than a year after he had been elected Pope, John Paul II visited Poland. The authorities were on guard, expecting him to talk about politics. Instead, the Pope cut to the heart of the issue and planted a seed that would lead to the destruction of communism. The Pope stood before the people of his country and said, you are not who they say you are. Let me remind you who you really are. In that moment, the fictional dialogue between Brother Albert and the Marxist revolutionary suddenly became very real. The Polish Pope stood before the Soviet Union and challenged the fundamental idea that underpinned the whole ideology. Two years after this event, the Pope would survive an assassination attempt. The surgeons who operated on him would testify that the bullets seemed to have moved within his body, missing the vital organs. The Pope would later attribute the miracle to the intercession of Our Lady of Fatima, visiting her shrine some years later and placing the bullet in the crown of her statue as an act of thanksgiving. Eight years later, the Berlin Wall would fall and communism would end in the Soviet Union. The idea that was first expressed in a play became the script that would change the history of the modern world. <laughs>